We're going to be in John 7 and, and Luke 9. We're looking at really an interesting little event and conversation in Jesus' ministry that I know in my own personal life in the past I've been tempted to skip over, but in reading it the, these past couple of weeks, I, I was hit by a couple elements of it. Um, so if you want to turn anywhere, you can turn to John 7 and Luke 9, kind of a finger in both places. Um, but then there's going to be there's going to be a ton of scripture this this morning. I mean, more than my normal amount, and, and that's intentional. I'll explain why when we get to different sections. But you also might want to have your phone ready to take pictures of the slides because there's going to be a lot of references on the slides, and we're not going to always read all of them. I, I more want you to see the volume of scripture that relates to what we're talking about this morning. But please, before we begin, join me in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for everything. If we actually sat down and tried to list out everything we have to be thankful for, we could fill weeks. And we thank you for that fact in and of itself. You're so good to us. You're so generous. You're so gracious. You've poured out so abundantly on us. And we praise you for that. Lord, as we prepare to open your word and study it, let this be you. Let this be from you. Let these be your words. Hide me. Get rid of me. Let your people listen with ears opened by your spirit. Teach me in this. Teach us corporately. Show us where we need to go to look more and more like Jesus. Show us where we need to go to be more and more like the church as you have established and created. And it's in Jesus' precious name we ask for these things. And we ask that you get the glory this morning. Amen. All right, so let's start, let's start with John 7. And keep in mind, why do we study Jesus' life? Right, Sam, we know Jesus. He's talked about more than anything else in church. We study Jesus' life because we're called to look like Jesus. The Christian can never forget that. The, the individual Christian can never forget that you are individually called to look like Jesus. It's what's been set out for us. It's our standard. And so we study Jesus' life to see how he lived, to see how he talked, to see how he interacted with people, so that we see what we are to reflect in our words and our behavior and our action. Jen Wilkin has a great quote. She says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And so we study Jesus to know him because I, what I found in my own life, what I will give testimony to my own life, that the deeper I've known Jesus, the more I know his word, the more I know his life, the deeper I find myself growing in my love and appreciation for him and my love for what he's done, and love of who he is, and wanting to look more like him. So keep this idea in mind. As we read through these stories, they may seem like surfacey kind of, that's a really quick, I mean, these conversations are literally, we're talking about one or two sentences. But look at what you see about who Jesus is. Remember, that's why we're studying Jesus' life, to see who he is. So listen to see what we, what we learn about Jesus' heart in these conversations. This is John 7, 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. 
You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So this really interesting conversation. Jesus' Jesus' brothers, part of his disciples, say, hey, look, let's go up. Let's let's go up to the feast. This is going to be a big deal. We're going to look at the Feast of the Booze here in just a second. But I want to look at what happens in between these two events. Because Jesus' brothers say, hey, let's go up now. And Jesus says, no, that timing is not appropriate. But then it doesn't say he never went up. I think it's hilarious that it says, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up. So Jesus didn't just never go up to the feast, but the brothers said, hey, let's go up now. The timing is good now. And Jesus said, no, that's not God's timing. And then on God's timing, then he starts traveling to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Booth. So what happened in between there? What happens in between his brothers leaving and then Jesus leaving? And then not only, so if you keep reading, if you keep reading in John, it says, you know, he starts to go up. And then the very next sentence, verse 14 says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple. So Jesus missed the start of the feast. So what happens in between his brothers leaving to get there for the start of the feast and Jesus leaving to get there in the middle of the feast? Well, for this, we turn to Luke 9. And this is why I think it's been, it's been at least personally, I've really enjoyed reading the Bible in chronological order, so you, you see these details. But in Luke 9, we see verse 51, when the, J, when the days draw near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So as part of Jesus' travel, he comes to this village, and he wants to stay there for the night, right? It's a multiple-day journey, and they want to stay in this one village for lodging for the night. But the Samaritans denied him because they were set towards the direction of Jerusalem. And his disciples say, you know, they have a conversation, and we'll come back to that. But, I mean, when you look at this, so you've got his brothers say, hey, let's go up. No, it's not God's timing. Then they leave. Then Jesus and his disciples go up, and they come to the Samaritan village. And I want to look at both of those, because in both of those moments, in both of those conversations with disciples, we learn something about Jesus, and therefore we learn something about how we're to live. And first you have, it says, the Feast of the Booths was at hand. This was a big deal in Jewish culture. This is actually a picture of a modern-day Feast of the Booths. It's also called Feast of the Tents, Festival of the Tents, Feast of the Tabernacles, Festival of the Tabernacles. And the, the historian Josephus notes that of the three main festivals in the Jewish calendar, the Feast of the Booths was the biggest deal. This was maybe not the most spiritually significant, but this was the most popular. This was the most well-attended. Masses would travel from all over to get to Jerusalem for this festival. And when they got there, it was a week-long festival, and when they got there, they would erect small little tents outside the city or even within the city to stay in, hence the Feast of the Booths, Feast of the Tents. It was actually celebrating a gathering in of the crop at the end of the harvest season, but it was named Feast of the Booths because the city of Jerusalem would be recognized by all these little establishments. And so this is a big deal. This is, this is the Super Bowl, the World Series. I mean, this is every major sporting event rolled into one. This is going to be the biggest crowd of Jewish people possible, right? And so that's the context of what they're going to. And so the brother's perspective of this is, well, if this is the biggest stage, then Jesus, you need to get on that. 
if this is going to be the biggest gathering of people, they say, if you do these things, show them to the world. For his brothers still did not believe him. And so his brothers are looking at this big event from the perspective of, this is going to be a huge spotlight. We cannot miss out on that spotlight. And the Bible's not clear on what their motives are. So we're not going to hypothesize of why, they, if it was to convince the world, if it was to convince them, whatever it was. All we know is that the brothers' perspective was, this is a big stage. Jesus, let's get you on it so that everyone can see you do miracles. Everyone can see you do your works. They're concerned with their timing and their perspective. And what's Jesus say? He says, no. And he gently kind of chides them in this. He says, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. And then he goes on to say, the world cannot hate you, but the world hates me. And we know from Scripture that the world hates those who are not of the world. So what Jesus is, is gently rebuking his brothers of here is he's saying, your focus is on yourself. Your focus is on your own idea of when God needs to work and how God needs to work. And that's not going to fly. I'm not going to deviate from God's plan for my life just because you think the time is appropriate now. See, Jesus, the lesson for us, Jesus is always, always, always focused on what is God's time, and he is submitted to that. And note that it's not like I pointed out earlier. It's not that he never goes to the festival. He goes just a little bit later, but he goes in God's time because his perspective is on what will glorify God. What is obedience to God? What is submission to God? Even if it may make sense, right, from a human standpoint, from a practical standpoint, if this is the biggest gathering of Jews in the world, and you're wanting to show Jesus to be the Messiah, why wouldn't you want to be there for the first day, right? Everyone's there. Why wouldn't you want to be there for maximum exposure? But that's our perspective. That's our logic. That's not how Jesus operated. So it's not always easy, but we need to keep in mind that we must always operate in direct submission to the will and the timeline of God. And then as part of that timeline, as part of that timeline I mentioned, this idea of his interaction with a Samaritan village. What do we know about Samaria? This is where we've got to pull in lessons from past sermons. Let's go back to John 4, Jesus and the woman at the well. And part of that conversation was we learned about the difference in Samaritan religious culture and Jewish religious culture. And see, Samaritans, one of the biggest sources of conflict and tension between Samaritans and Jews was their idea on what constituted proper worship. Samaritans thought, see that blue, the Mount Gerizim up at the top, right under and right above it is Samaria. And then down at the very bottom, you have Jerusalem, which would have had the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? So the Samaritans held to and taught that only real worship happened on Mount Gerizim. That that was where God was. That was where you met God. That was where you came into communion and fellowship with God. And that was where you needed to worship. That was proper religious behavior. That was the proper belief system. But when you look at the historical context of Samaria, we know that the Samaritans came about from mixing paganistic belief systems with Judaistic belief systems. And Jesus himself in John 4 says, you worship whom you do not know. Jesus points out that the Samaritans did not have a proper understanding of God. They did not properly understand relationship with God. They did not properly understand fellowship with God. And they, properly did, or they did not properly understand worship of God. So in John 4, Jesus rebukes the Samaritans and says, You worship whom you do not know. They're wrong in their belief system, but the Samaritans were adamant in their belief system that worship happens on Mount Gerizim. Samaritans also were aware of the calendar. They would have known that the festival, why is that in detail? The festival of the booths, why is that important for this interaction with the Samaritans? 
because they would have known why the Jewish people were traveling. They would have understood, right? If the Super Bowl was in Columbus, and all of a sudden, right, the Super Bowl next week, the Super Bowl's in Columbus, and Monday through Saturday of this coming week, the traffic is just crazy, we would know why. Because everyone, we wouldn't be like, oh, everybody's here to stay in Mansfield, cool. Ah, oh, sweet. No, we'd know that they're trying to get through Mansfield to get to Columbus. So the Samaritans culturally understand that Jewish people traveling through Samaria, see, it says they went to seek lodging. And they're not seeking long-term. When you look at the commentaries, when you break it down, they're not seeking long-term lodging. They're looking for, it's a multiple-day journey. We need somewhere to stay tonight so we can continue on our way the next day. And so what this signifies to the Samaritans, let's, let's break it down logically. Samaritans say you can only properly worship here. Anything other than worshiping here is not genuine. This is false. That's false. This is the real belief system that you should have. So someone traveling through their area is obviously not intending to stay there and worship at their place of worship, signifying a different belief system. What does it say? It says he sent messengers in to seek lodging. So there was a group of them. So we don't know. It's unfair to say, well, the Samaritans were rejecting him as Messiah. We don't know that. We don't know that the Samaritans knew they were looking for lodging for the Messiah. All the Samaritans knew was there was a group of Jewish men wanting to stay the night, and they denied them this. Why? Well, because your belief system is different than ours. So Jesus says, okay, we'll go on to the next village. So what you have is you have a group of Jewish men being mistreated, being treated with prejudice, because the cultural context they found themselves in had a different belief system and a different value system. You guys see where we're going with this? What's the response? Again, you have a difference of perspective. The disciples see this, and let me be clear, in the Old Testament there are instances, Elijah, David at different times, there are instances where the rejection of God and his belief system does, does warrant strict strictly dealt with, being strictly dealt with. But here, the disciples presume, and they presume this to be the desired outcome. So the Samaritans deny them. They mistreat them because of a differing belief system. And James and John say, well, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? They rejected us. They mistreated us. Should we call down fire from heaven to consume them and punish them for this, to deal with them justly? And what does Jesus say? It says, he turned and rebuked them. Some, some manuscripts, not all of them, but a decent number of manuscripts also include, uh, Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you ask of for this. For the Son of Man came not to destroy lives, but to save them. And so you have, once again, a perspective of, whoa, they rejected us, they mistreated us. Should we respond in cord, or in, in kind? Should we respond at the same level of hostility and rejection that they did? And Jesus says, No. He rebukes them. So why is that so significant? I'm studying, as I read through this and I'm reading through this, I'm studying this, I'm seeing these parallels to where we are today. And I start opening commentaries to look at what more educated, okay, who else has studied this and understand this? And I'm seeing ideas pop up again and again. Because keep in mind that Jesus was not, what was going on here? Jesus was not affirming their false belief system. Okay, Jesus was not abandoning the truth. John 4, 22, you worship who you do not know. 
So Jesus had already stated that the Samaritan belief system was wrong. Here he is denied because of his belief system, because of their belief system. Jesus does not abandon the truth. He doesn't say, oh shoot, we offended the Samaritans. Well, let's just, we'll cut our travel plan short and we'll worship at Mount Gerizim so as not to offend them. Jesus doesn't abandon the truth. He doesn't change his behavior to accommodate them, but he responds in grace and mercy. And as I'm reading through the commentaries, as I'm studying this, the one commentary, my New American Standard, the NASB, had this to say. I thought the sentence was fantastic. Christ's response to the intolerance of the Samaritans exemplifies the attitude the church ought to have with regards to all forms of religious persecution. And that word persecution stopped me. Because it's what I was circling around as I was studying this. And then I'm seeing more and more people talk about it. And it froze me because this is a word that is dominating the conversation in Christian circles today. James last week, I mean, consider James last week preached on the idea of take up your cross daily and follow me. And this idea of suffering for the Lord. And he pointed out that we frequently think of persecution as death, right? A martyrdom is persecution. But James rightly pointed out last week that that's not the only definition of persecution. Persecution is prejudice mistreatment because of your belief system. And honestly, we're seeing this all over the place. I'm having conversations with multiple people in this church body about some of the things going on in our world, wondering, are we facing persecution? I'm part of multiple groups of pastors and and church leaders engaging in conversations around the country and around the state. And in the one group, the conversation has been really focused on two aspects. Some of the laws currently before our federal government and what it will mean for Christian schools and Christian health systems and things like that. And then also Amazon, if people aren't aware, Amazon just this week pulled a book written by a Christian author from a Christian perspective on some social issues. It's been on Amazon for three years. So it's not like this was, you know, back in the 1970s. Like, it's been on Amazon for three years. It was published in 2018, and it's been fine for three years. But now recently, Amazon pulled it. And there's an online music streaming service that has had a contract with several churches for years. And just within the last month, denied them new contracts, canceled the contracts, and wouldn't share their music. And this is what church leaders are talking about. This is what pastors are talking about. These are the conversations I'm having with you all. Last Friday, I spent five hours with a guy from Columbia Gas. And he brought up, he looked at me, he goes, okay, you're a pastor. And I was like, oh, this is going to be good, right? He's like, you're a pastor. Should we be afraid? Should Christians be afraid that persecution is coming? I mean, this is a guy asking a total stranger. The only thing he knows about me, he forgot my name. But the only thing he knew about me was I was a pastor. And he said, should Christians be afraid of persecution? This is a very real, whether or not you want to argue about the legitimacy of different things, we cannot deny that the Christian conversation is currently looking at is persecution ahead for us. And so then we come to this point in Jesus' life and we see him be mistreated by people because of his belief system. And I was like, all right, I might be thick and slow at sometimes, but even I can put two and two together. We should talk about this. And so I've shared this before. My question is always going to be, when something arises, my question is always going to be, all right, what's the Bible say? God's Word, living and active, suitable for all occasions, beneficial in every manner. What does God's Word say about persecution? So for the second half of this, I want to look at what does God's Word say about persecution for the individual Christian in the church. And I want to start by dispelling a myth. And keep in mind, 
We're going to talk about tough stuff this morning. All right? I don't mean any of this personally. I don't mean any of this critically. I'm literally, this is why I said there's going to be a ton of scripture. Because if we're going to talk about a topic like this, we're going to make sure that we are approaching it from a biblical viewpoint and nothing else. And so I want to start things off with a hard question. If your life, right, we looked at God's, what was the first aspect of this element of Jesus' ministry? Jesus' brother has had their timing, and Jesus said, no, that's not God's timing. So Jesus is submitted to God's timetable for his life. So if in God's timetable for your life, there is going to be periods of mistreatment, perhaps even persecution, does that mean he is any less in control? Does that mean he is any less God? Here are the songs we sang. We sang, through the calm and through the storm, you never let go. I see the evidences of your goodness all around me. I am no longer a slave to fear. Is that true when things are good, but not when things are tough? Or is that true regardless of external circumstances? Does the evidence of God's goodness disappear the moment my life gets anything less than easy? The moment someone mistreats me, well, there goes the evidence of God's goodness. Now I'm a slave to fear again. We have to ask ourselves this. Does mistreatment of Christians, does, if you are mistreated because of your belief system, does that in any way, shape, or form change the sovereignty of God? I would argue adamantly it does not. And so if it does not, then does my personal response to being mistreated, does it reflect my Lord or does it reflect my flesh? How I respond to persecution, how I respond to prejudice, how I respond to being mistreated as a believer, if indeed I get to a point where I, Sam Belsterling, am mistreated because I believe in Jesus, the way I respond to that, will that reveal God or will that reveal my own immaturity and my own selfish interests? And the first thing, when we consider this idea of, of being mistreated, of being persecuted, is a phrase that just drives me up a wall because it's so unbiblical. And you see it on, you know, plaques that people put in their kitchens. Anytime something bad happens, you know, everybody rushes to write it on their Facebook wall or send it to them. Don't worry, God will never give you anything more than you can handle. Show me where it, I mean, point me to the Bible verse. Come on, you can't because it's a lie. Well, that's pretty harsh. Say, well, let's look at the Bible. What did I say? I'm always going to go to Scripture. Right? 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. <laughs> Listen to this. Oh, my goodness. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a death sentence. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Consider the people of Israel when they were trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. You think that was more than they could handle? What were they going to do about that, huh? Daniel in the lion's den. You think, you think that was more than Daniel versus you know, half a dozen lions who are starved? You think that was more than Dan or Daniel landed? He was like, oh yeah, I did this last Tuesday. Cool. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in a furnace so hot that it burned the people who even brought them close. You think that was more than they could handle when they were down in the middle of the flames? I, I mean, the Old Testament alone is just a story after a story, right? Joshua in the battle of Jericho. They went to war with trumpets. You think that was more than they could handle? So this idea of, oh, no, no, don't worry. God will never give you more than you can handle. It's just nonsense. 
But what do we see throughout Scripture? What do we see in, in Corinthians 1, 8 through 9? See, we need to change. God will never give you more than anything you can handle to, I'll never be able to go through anything more than what God can handle. There will never be a situation that's beyond what God can handle. And if we would start to alter our perspective, then we would cease to see these obstacles in front of us as insurmountable. As Paul says, he says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises us from the dead. So when you consider the idea of being mistreated and persecuted, don't believe the nonsense that, well, you know, we really don't have to worry about this because I'm, I'm never going to face any mistreatment that's more than I can handle. I'm never going to face any sort of persecution that's more than I can handle. No, you're never going to face any mistreatment or persecution that's more than what God can handle. But I think Scripture is abundantly clear in examples of when it's more than what the people can handle, it gives the opportunity for God to get the glory. All right, here's where you need to have your phones out. We're, there's going to be a lot of references up there. And what I want you to pay in mind, don't worry about reading through all of them. I'm not, and don't worry, I'm not going to read through all of them right now. But I want you to see the volume, I mean the sheer quantity of Scripture that is given to talking about persecution in the life of Christians. Because when you look at the quantity of Scripture that is given to, hey, this is what you need to be aware of in terms of persecution, it's pretty clear that persecution, being mistreated, is a part of our belief. And so the very first thing is we shouldn't be surprised by it. I mean, really, there's one of the things that I was talking to the guy from Columbia Gas, and he asked, you know, should we be afraid of persecution? We start breaking down fear, and we start breaking down, you know, he's like, well, aren't you surprised by this? I said, not, not even remotely. I mean, not even a little bit. Because I don't see how you read through Scripture and come away thinking that the Christian life is going to be devoid of mistreatment or persecution. Consider these passages, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. See, persecution isn't physical death. Persecution might just be gossip and lies. Utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what's an important detail there that Jesus says? He said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and lie about you on my account. It's not I was persecuted for being a jerk, Right? If I disagree with my neighbor's political viewpoint, so I go over and I kick down all his signs and throw them in the trash, and then he starts to talk bad about me, I can be like, oh, I'm being persecuted. Well, no, I was a jerk. He says, blessed are you when you're persecuted on my behalf for righteousness. He says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake when they lie about you because of my name. So this isn't a, we feel self-righteous and woe is me, the world's... It's, hey, are you being persecuted because you look like Jesus? That's what he's talking about here. He talks about it in Matthew 10. He talks about it in John 15. In John 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Galatians 4.29, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. 
What else do we see in the New Testament? That those who believe are born again. We are born of the Spirit. It's a new life in us. Read through Ephesians. We're born of the Spirit. What's Galatians say? Back then, the flesh persecuted those of the Spirit. That's going on now too. 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 through 4. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. We sent Timothy to strengthen you and to challenge you, to encourage you in your faith. Oh, that's nice. Why? Well, that no one may be moved by afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. You know this. He says, just as you know, you know affliction's coming. Historically, affliction has come. We told you it was going to come. What, don't be surprised by this. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. Read that whole passage at some point, but I want to point out verse 12. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What? Where, you tell me where there's room for surprise at persecution and being mistreated. Uh, I mean, you, you tell me scripturally where a Christian can be like, whoa, this is new information. So I said we're going to have a hard conversation. I want you to ask hard questions of yourself. Here, here's a hard question. If you're really surprised by the idea that American Christians might face persecution, there's a pastor in Canada who's in jail right now. I mean, if you're really surprised that we might face persecution, that Community Bible Church might face persecution, that you individually might face persecution, I want you to ask two questions. Are you surprised because you haven't spent enough time in Scripture? Or you've spent time in Scripture only on the easy passages that make you feel good? That's not an easy question. Do I only open the Bible to read the stuff that makes me feel good? Or do I not open it enough to be familiar with this abundance of verses? I mean, goodness, Jesus talking in multiple places about persecution. So are you surprised because you're not familiar enough with Scripture? If so, change that. Or are you surprised? This is, I told you, these are going to be hard questions. Or are you surprised and shocked at the idea of persecution in your own life because, well, surely that couldn't happen to me. Well, surely that couldn't happen to us. What makes you so special that you deserve better treatment than the rest of Christians around the world and throughout history? Well, surely it couldn't happen to America. What, what makes America better than any other country in the world that we don't deserve to face what our brothers and sisters face every day? I mean, really, if you are shocked by the idea of persecution in your life or your kid's life, ask yourself, why are you so surprised by this? Is it possible we've placed ourselves on a pedestal and strayed dangerously close into idolatry? Well, you know, I mean, persecution's fine for you know, Christians in Thailand and India and China, but not, not Christians in Mansfield. No, that, that can't possibly be true about us. The persecution's fine for, you know, Sam and James, they're pastors. They kind of deserve persecution, but not me. I don't, I don't deserve persecution. I mean, if you're really shocked by the idea of persecution in your life for your belief, ask yourself why. So if we shouldn't be surprised, you thought this was a lot of scripture? Woo! Look at that. Again, you can't be surprised by this. But if we can't respond with shock and outrage, we can't respond with, whoa, my mind is blown by this idea. This is new information. If we can't respond like that, how should we respond to persecution? How should we respond to being mistreated because of our faith? 
Matthew 5, 43 through 47, Jesus talks about it. Acts 5, 40 to 42, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Romans 5 talks about it. Romans 8 talks about it. Romans 12 talks about it. 2 Corinthians 12.10 For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is Paul writing. And this is 2 Corinthians. How did 2 Corinthians start? 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. We faced persecution that we could not bear or endure. We faced in, uh, uh, afflictions that were so great it was a death sentence. All of this was so that I could learn not to rely on myself, but to rely on God. In that same letter, Paul now writes, for the sake of Christ, then I am content. I'm not grumbling about them. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Timothy 3.14 But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And what's the context of 2 Timothy 3? We just read it five minutes ago. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So say, hey, Timothy, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. So will anyone else who wants the same thing. They might respond like this, but as for you... No, you continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. It doesn't matter what comes against you. You continue in what you know to be true. Hebrews 10, 34 to 36. Listen to this. Listen to this passage. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Let's get hypothetical. This is totally hypothetical. Don't read into it. Don't say I'm saying this is what's going to happen. What if next week the Ohio State government just took this building, just seized it? National Guard descends, nope, you can't have this building. The property's ours. We have plundered your property. Well, okay, well, God, God's not good. I guess church disappears. I mean, really, hypothetically, what if, it, what if we lost this building? Not it burned down and the insurance money allowed us to build a new one. What if the government seized it? This is our property. It's ours now. You don't have it. You're a church. You believe in Jesus, not your building. Do we just give up? Do we just cease to exist? No, he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's That's incredible. That, I mean, that's mind-blowing. That can only come from God. And that's the point of all of this, is to point to God. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, see, it goes back to the perspective issue that we introduced this whole time. The disciples, his half-brothers, had their earthly perspective. Jesus had a heavenly perspective. Then they go through Samaria and they're denied service at a village. And the disciples have an earthly perspective and Jesus had the heavenly perspective. And in Hebrews, the property is plundered and they respond in joy because they have a heavenly perspective. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The letter of James in multiple places talks about responding to persecution. 
1 Peter 3, 14 through 17. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We've referenced that verse multiple times of always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. What's the full context of that verse? The context is affliction. The context is suffering and persecution. What he's writing in this, he says, even if you should suffer, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Well, who's the them? Them putting you through the persecution and the suffering and the affliction. Don't be troubled by it. Don't be troubled by them. But always be prepared in your heart. Always be ready to give an answer, a defense of the reason for the hope that you have. What he's saying is you're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. There are going to be people set against you, causing you affliction. Even in those circumstances, respond with a hope that is so evident that people ask you about what is going on with you. Mike, your job fired you because you believe in Jesus. They took back your house because you believe in Jesus. They threw your wife in prison because she sings praise songs. But you have hope that's weird, that doesn't make sense. And Mike says, yeah, let me tell you about Jesus. That's the context of always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. The context of mistreatment and suffering and affliction. Because when we respond with hope, when we respond, what's it say? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's not lashing out. It's not reacting violently or aggressively. It's responding with hope and gentleness and respect that is so absurd to the world looking at your state of persecution and affliction that they can't help but ask, why are you behaving like this? 1 Peter 4, 12-16 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, goodness. Don't be surprised like this is something strange. So when Christians are like, well, I'm surprised at this idea of persecution. That's why I ask. Have you read enough of the Bible? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Don't, again, don't get it twisted. You won't get persecuted because you look like the world. What did Jesus say to his disciples when they said, hey, let's go? He says, no, the world can't hate you because you're still in the world. You're of the world. The world hates me because I'm not of the world. Don't let anyone suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We don't give up. We press on. We endure. We respond with hope. We respond with gentleness. We respond with mercy. We respond with compassion. We respond with the heart of Christ so that the world looks at us in a situation where our behavior makes no sense to them and they see Jesus. So when people ask me, okay, the Equality Act, Amazon pulling down books, songs or uh, online music services pulling down praise albums, pastors being thrown in jail, I mean, what are we going to do? We're going to point to Jesus. We're not going to be afraid. 
We're not going to be shocked. We're not going to panic. We're not going to respond with our elbows out. All right, I'm ready. To, let's, let's throw some punches. You want to come for me over my dead body? No. Yeah, I'll joyfully accept the plundering of my property because my reward's greater than any physical building. I mean, this is what Scripture lays out. That persecution is a chance to point to Jesus, to give glory to God. So we rejoice in our suffering. I mean, it says rejoice. Not even just tolerate it, but rejoice in your suffering and tribulation. i got to tell you, in all the conversations I've seen happening in, in local and state and national levels, I'm not seeing a whole lot of rejoicing at this prospect. I'm seeing a whole lot of be afraid, get ready, prepare, be afraid. No, rejoice. Rejoice that the world looked at you and was so disgusted by Jesus in you that they had to persecute you. They didn't crucify Jesus because He was just a nice guy. They crucified Jesus because He was fundamentally opposed to everything they held dear to. Everything, he worship, or everything they worshipped, He was against. And they would not tolerate that. They martyred the apostles, all but one of the original apostles, or well, Judas killed himself, then they replaced him with someone. All but one of those twelve died a martyr's death, crucifixion, beheading, boiled alive, burned alive. Because the world was so disgusted by Jesus in them that it would not tolerate them, and so they persecuted them. Why would we ever rejoice that the world has no interest in persecuting us? I would submit this, that if the church or if the world is willing to leave a body of believers alone, it's because they look nothing like Jesus and pose no threat to the world. If the world looks at me and says, yeah, we're cool with him. Go on, go on talking about what you talk. I, I'm going to doubt if I'm saying anything that sounds like Jesus. So we rejoice in suffering and persecution because it gives us an opportunity to glorify God. We don't worry about it. What's the Bible said? One of the best decisions I ever made in my life was to take the Bible seriously. And that sounds obvious, but hear me out. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. For who among you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Look at the birds of the field. Do they worry where their next meal is coming from? How infinitely more valuable are you to the Father than a sparrow? Look at the lilies of the field. I mean, the Bible says, do not worry about tomorrow. So when I say I made a decision at a point in my life, I'm, I'm going to take the Bible seriously. That means I look at a passage like, do not worry about tomorrow, for who among you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? And I say, okay, I'm going to take that seriously. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I get hit by a bus as I leave here. Now, it doesn't say don't think about tomorrow. Make no mistake. I'm not saying don't plan for tomorrow. Don't think about tomorrow. Don't be aware. The Bible also says we're to be wise. We're to be, it says we're to be mindful of the times we live in. I mean, the Bible says, be mindful of the days you live in. This is not an excuse to not be wise. This is not an excuse to go blow your savings account today, right? Like, hey, we just went out and bought seven boats because why worry about tomorrow? No, that's not what this is saying. There's a difference between do not think about tomorrow. There's a difference between do not be aware of your days and your surroundings and, well, I'm worried about it. I'm panicked about it. I'm afraid about it. Church, we just, we just need to take the Bible seriously. Expect it. And when it happens, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. 
so that we can point to Jesus. So to circle it all back to the questions I've been asked numerous times in the last couple weeks, what are we going to do about the Equality Act? What are we going to do about Amazon? What are we going to do about online music services? Well, we're going to pray. We're going to praise Jesus. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to gather in fellowship. We're going to tithe faithfully. I mean, in short, I intend to keep on living exactly as I've been living. I intend for my life to point to Jesus in every way, shape, and form. And that should not be dependent on if that's easy for me or hard. It should be dependent on what has God called me to. And guess what? That hasn't changed. So this week as we consider this, I want you to read Hebrews 11. It's called the Hall of Fame chapter. Pay special attention to the last couple of verses, verses 35 to 38, especially verse 38. I love Hebrews 11. You get to the end of Hebrews 11 and it lists all these things that it says they were persecuted, they were oppressed, they were sold as slaves, they were executed. I mean, it goes through all these terrible things that happened to believers. And then verse 38 says, and the world was not worthy of them. So read Hebrews 11 every day this week. Or, you know, make sure you read through it once. Twice. Internalize it. Read Hebrews 11. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down the people who might persecute you. Or Christian, I mean, if you want to start on a larger scale, seriously, write out a list. Put it on your fridge. Put it on your desk at work. I dare you. What's the, I mean, oh, that, that sounds silly. Do it. Keep it in front of you. Write down. All right, the government might persecute Christian. Okay, write down the government. Uh, businesses might. Okay, write down business. Well, the local banks might seize my. Okay, write it down. Uh, I mean, really, write down everybody who might persecute you individually or us corporately, right? And then I want you to pray for them. And not pray, dear Lord, help them see what a terrible person they are and let them get what's coming to them. That's not how we pray. Listen to Romans 12, 12 through 14. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Matthew 5, 43-47, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How would you pray for someone you love dearly? How would you pray for your spouse or a family member? Lord, be gracious to them. Be merciful to them. Teach them who you are. I mean, when I pray for my wife, I'm praying for these things. Lord, draw her nearer to your heart. Give her joy today that can only be found in you. How would you pray for someone you love? All right, those people you wrote down who might persecute you, that's how I want you to pray for them. Anybody can pray for their friends for, for blessings. Anybody. I mean, goodness, it's not hard for me to pray for my wife that God would be kind to her. I enjoy praying for God to be kind to her. Even tax collectors can do that. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Bless them. Do not curse them. So as we consider this possibility of mistreatment for American Christians, okay, Let's point to Jesus. I mean, this is how Jesus responded. May we respond like Jesus. Please join me in prayer. God, 
You alone are good. You alone are holy. You have given us the standard of our response. May we rise to meet that standard. And Lord, we don't have it in us on our own. Apart from you, I do not have the compassion that I ought to. But you have given us your spirit. You have placed your spirit in us. And as Paul wrote, we're not to rely on ourselves. We are to rely on you who raised us from the dead. So Father, for this body of believers right here, Lord, fill us with your spirit and your heart for all people. The people we're afraid of, the people we want to be afraid of, the people who panic creeps in and tries to make us spiral down that dark hole. Kill it. And instead, replace it with a heart that seeks to bless those people. With a heart that prays earnestly for them, that loves them. Lord, if persecution... I have no clue what's ahead for this church, for these people. I don't know if persecution is going to happen this year or 20 years from now or never in our lifetime. But if it does, God, would you use it to open doors? Would you use it to point to you? Please. If it's going to come up in our life, then prepare us to glorify you in it. Teach us to respond like Jesus did. Mold us to look like Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.